Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio. I'm thrilled by this. William Morris. Hey, brother, I'm thrilled too. <laughs> An alumnus of WFHB. Mm-hmm. WFHB serving as sort of the farm team for WFIU, where you are now as a DJ. And a great show on Friday afternoon. Uh, that's the Soul Kitchen. Mm-hmm. You're also an attorney, and you have been a volunteer for many organizations yes. at, at many times. Yes. You're, you're a man who loves life. I love people. And people. Yeah, I love people, and I love life. And, you know, just yesterday, Michael, it's interesting. I was leaving our office, which is right across the street almost, diagonally from WFHB. That's the Indiana Legal That's Services. That's Indiana Legal Services, right there at the corner of College and Fourth. And I was walking out of the office, and it was a warm Friday, and the sky was blue, and the flags were whipping in the wind, and there was the dome of downtown. And I just said, man, what a fantastic place to live. I'm so happy to be here. Great moments where you just feel yeah, good and yeah. they stick that's with right. you. They, that's right. You remember them. Yes. The reason to go on living. Yes. Well, that's right. You have uh, taken a, a circuitous journey mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. get here. You were born uh, in Terre Haute, and then you've gone around to uh, about 150 different locations, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Where were you raised? Well, I was raised um, for the first, well, okay, this story is circuitous. So for the, right first, for the first year and a half, I was in Terre Haute in a foster home because when I was born, I was an orphan. So when I was four days old, I was uh, sent to a foster home, and I was with a foster mother who had 125 foster children, and I was her first one. And oh, okay. so it's just very great. She's still alive. I still see her. Just fantastic experience. But I was with her for the first year and a half of my life. Then I was adopted by a family in South Bend, um, the Morris family, from whom I got my name. Ah. And then I was there till I was 12. So I, I really, and I feel deeply about South Bend as, as part of my roots. Then we moved east to Newark, New Jersey. So I sort of put this in that I moved from the shadow of the Golden Dome, which is very true. We yeah. lived so close to, to Notre Dame, to the Sopranos, because we, <laughs> we lived in this Italian, Irish, Puerto Rican neighborhood. Um, and so, yeah, so then Newark, I, I was there until I was in midway through undergrad. So I was really influenced deeply by the all-black neighborhood I lived in in South Bend, Indiana, and then this... Irish, Italian, Puerto Rican, and 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 black because Newark largely largely black um, neighborhood that I grew up in in New, in the New York metropolitan area till I was twenty. The reason uh, you were sent to foster homes was because your parents had to give you up. Yeah. Now yes. why is that? Well, my mother uh, was white, um, blonde hair, blue eyed, really nice woman, very talented artistically in a lot of ways, and very friendly. I think I. The gifts, whatever gifts I have in personality, I, I really got from her. And my father was um, was black, a little bit Native American, and they were in high school when they when I was conceived and born. And they wanted to get married to keep me, and I think they were very much in love until the end of my mother's life several years ago. But um, the miscegenation laws and, and anti-race um, laws 
um, against marriage, you know, that yeah, was overturned yeah. in U, U, U.S. Loving versus U.S. 1963. Right. Yeah. But in, in 1957, when I was born, those laws were still in place in Indiana, so they could not get married here. They they took a lot of actions to try to get married, but it never worked out. So um, my mother just went to one of those homes for unmarried mothers that they had around the country. And she had me, and she got to hold me for 15 minutes. I still have the poem somewhere that I need okay. to read to people that she wrote at the end of the 15 minutes. And um, and then she had to give me up, and then I went to the foster home. But you've kept in touch. Oh, my my, my birth mother um, is the reason I'm in Bloomington. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, she, she, she and I, we met in 1997. And um, she lived in Bloomington, and she, from the time I met her, she was already in poor health. Um, but we became very good friends. We became very close. And when I came to visit her in 2005, she was really at death's door. And I was living in Mexico at the time and working and working with church and teaching. And I just I told her I can't leave you like this. So I ended up staying um, and taking care of her till she passed away. So she lived here and then I came to Bloomington and just after a little while decided to make it my home and in large part, that's how I got involved in all these organizations mm-hmm. because I didn't know anybody. I don't go to bars. I'm not a big party hopper. Yeah. So I ended up taking a part-time job at Marsh on the east side in the deli so I could talk to people and then <laughs> getting involved with all these, you know, with Big Brother. And I mean, I could, you know, a bunch of organizations that I got involved with, got to meet people and do things. You're the ultimate American. Well, you know, I guess that that term ultimate American is so big that it can capture a whole lot of fish. That is right. And I'm sure I'm one of them. There's no question. And you know what, Michael, it's so interesting. I wish everybody had a chance, just six months to live outside the country. Because I think when we, when a person lives outside the country, you realize how American you are. You know, all of a sudden you're comparing food and other parts of culture and, and at least this was the experience with me, and I think with other people who've been outside the country for a while, you you start to you're able to better define what is American about me. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in Mexico that I really missed is I missed the diversity of America. I uh-huh. lived in a part of Mexico where there were many indigenous Mexicans because I worked in a in a mountainous region of Mexico. Um, and then there were sort of the indigenous, and then there were the European Mexicans, and I, I missed African Americans, I missed Caribbean Americans, I missed, I mean, I, I just missed all of the different, different aspects of America. The, you know, America's made up of many voices. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very proud's not quite the right word, maybe grateful. I'm grateful to be a voice of America. And we were sort of uh, alluding to that before we started uh, uh, recording here. We talked about. Is there a reason for us as Americans to be unified? And if we're unified, is it sort of a forced unification or is it a natural, real unification? Well, you know, it's very interesting. I think as as a lawyer, you know, we regularly have lawyers have sort of interface with the Constitution. And as a sort of uh, amateur historian, Mm -hmm. you know, I become very interested in uh, over the years of, you know, what were those things which created the Constitution? And you can read um, the Federalist Papers. You can read a lot of papers from back in the time and, and start to see, you know, a lot of times many of my conservative friends, they like to in- interpret the law based on what the founding, founding fathers thought. But I, I don't necessarily buy into that. But I buy into the idea that what were those ideas 
that upon which the Constitution is based. So it's based on economic freedom. Mm-hmm. It's based on suffrage freedom, mm-hmm. though though people aren't free to participate because there's specific rules in the Constitution right. that bar blacks, that bar Native Americans, that bar right. women. But people are thinking about who can vote, right. who can participate, because we're going to have a participatory government. We're going to have a government in which we're going to try to create economic freedoms, import and ex- export and, and different ideas of how we're going to do that. We're going to create common money. We're going to allow trade between the states. Um, so economic freedom, suffrage freedom, you know, move freedom of movement, freedom of religion. I mean, all of these freedoms. So I would say that if I was to distill it to one word, the ultimate idea of being American is to live in a place where you are allowed to pursue freedom. You know the old Molly Ivins line where she says, if you look at the history of uh, America, it's a, a continuous struggle for more and more people to share in the freedoms and the guarantees that's right. of the Constitution. That's, that's right. That's exactly right. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I'm a fan of Molly Ivins. Um, yeah. I agree with that wholeheartedly, and I think that's what... I think that's what, and I'm not going to wax too political here. I'm not going to get into presidencies or administrations or anything. But I think this has really been the ongoing struggle of the United States is to allow people the freedom to participate. This is what the the right to vote struggles are all about, right? Who can participate um, and who cannot? Are we going to allow... Um, a little extension of time so people, so the people with disabilities can get to the poll. Mm-hmm. Are we going to allow vans to go out to senior citizen homes and pick them up and bring them to the voting booths? What are we going to do to accommodate people for whom voting is not an easy task? How right. do we do those things? And all of that, for me, in the kind of way that I see things, is all about participating in this process of freedom. Sounds like a lawyer talking, to me. <laughs> brother. And but. Uh, <laughs> We mentioned that you took a circuitous path to get to Bloomington. Apparently, you took a circuitous path to get to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. You studied several other things. Now, mm-hmm. you went to uh, Lehigh University in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then you went to Indiana University. Uh, well, where ho, you, ho, well, I went to Indiana University after I was a lawyer. When I came oh. here, to, when I came to Bloomington to take care of my mother in 2005, um, I had been living out of the country in Mexico for five years and Guatemala for one year. So I'd been gone for about six years out of the United States. So when I came here, at that time, I was not a lawyer. I, uh-huh. I was not a lawyer at that time. I mean, I had been a lawyer, but I was not a lawyer at that time. Uh-huh. I, had, I had gotten out of the legal profession um, because I didn't think I wanted to be a lawyer anymore in 1999. Um, and so when I came here, I had come from overseas where I had taught English as a second language. So when I came here, I got involved in the international world at university as a teacher of English as a second language. And so it's sort of funny um, having that master's degree. I don't know what I, that I would have pursued it, except that I liked the job I had at Indiana University teaching English as a second language. And the only way I could keep that job was to continue working class by class, semester by semester on this master's degree. Mm-hmm. So today, looking back, I don't know if I will ever use teaching English as a second language again, though it taught me a lot of things. I met a lot of people. I was able to keep my job at IU. I finished that degree. You know, very interesting. One of the most interesting things about getting this diploma was that the graduation, um, graduate ed- the graduate school educa- uh, graduation, 
um, that woman that won the Nobel Prize, Eleanor Ostrom, was the speaker. And afterward, um, she, she was walking by me and, and my mother, and, and, and I asked her, could I take a picture with you? So somewhere I've got a picture with her, and then she passed away maybe in the next year. But yeah. she, she was a great speaker. And, you know, you talk about somebody like her, for example, or Dr. Kemen, there's a lot of people. I think there's a lot of people in Bloomington who have this. You know, there's a, a vision of inclusiveness, of problem solving, of working through the problems. Because I think even if you have people who have the most inclusive ideas of freedom, um, you're still going to have problems and challenges and disagreements, and you have to be able to find ways to get through those to keep the ball moving, right? So it's okay. I mean, you know, in the best games of basketball, you still need a referee, whatever that's worth. Yeah, I had a lot of business You have classes. a lot of hats, my friend. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them. And I got a big <laughs> head, too, so it's good. It's good. I can wear two or three of them at the same time. My head's so big. Well, you got your law degree at University of North Carolina. Yeah, that Chapel was great. Chapel Hill. Yes, brother. Yes, brother. As a matter of fact, you're wearing the light blue yeah, at, I'm with wearing dark right blue now. lettering yeah. right now. Yeah, I'm wearing it right now. Yeah, I, I, I. But, you know, it's interesting. During my time there, and I've told Scott May, I, any of these IU basketball players or people in the IU basketball community, um, I've told them all I was the biggest IU fan in Chapel Hill for the time I was there. <laughs> so I was, I was an IU fan, and... Um, and, and have been for many years. But I, yes. I, I loved living in Chapel Hill. Um, you know, Chapel Hill, I mean, IU and Chapel Hill State Schools, very similar in many, many ways. But, of course, Chapel Hill is in a, in a more metropolitan area, though I think Chapel Hill at one time was not as metropolitan as it is today. But right. you know, it's 10 miles from Duke. It's 20 miles from North Carolina State. Yep. There's a lot of historically... Black colleges dotted through there, North Carolina Central, Shaw University, um, up the road in, in Greensboro, uh, the schools that are in Greensboro, uh, North Carolina a and I mean, there's just, there's a lot more, you have a lot more diversity there than, than we do here. I mean, we're in a little bit of an island of liberal thinking progressiveness here. You know, you go three miles in any direction and you're in another part of Indiana. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's. So the time in Chapel Hill was fruitful in terms of a lawyer, in terms of my church life, and in terms of really the music, you know, which has become such a basis of what I do, at what I did here and at WFIU. And I don't really know, I think, and I'm sort of monopolizing the conversation, excuse me, but well, I... Well, I want you to. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and and uh, so I, but you know, I, I, I talk with uh, my soon-to-be wife, hopefully Sarah, and, and we talk a lot about how... During my whole life, my mind has been a recorder of the music people have shared with me. And hmm. I've always listened to it, you know, starting with pop, uh, Motown, jazz, Latino music, more jazz. In North Carolina, I was editor of a newsletter called the, um, um, the North Carolina Blues Society. And so I went all over the state listening to, you know, old blues um, new blues and, and just, you know, the blues time and just, just all this music's constantly. And today I just, I, you know, I have the, the good fortune, the blessing of when you hear the soul kitchen on Friday or Saturday nights, all I'm doing is excuse this word, regurgitating all that I've heard. Cause all that music is <laughs> well, inside of me. You know, I, I, I was just thinking this morning, 
Uh, soul Kitchen, you can hear R&B, mm-hmm. the, the old style R&B, mm-hmm. soul, mm-hmm. funk, mm-hmm. hard rock. Yeah, that's right. Even sometimes AOR stuff, yeah. album-oriented, yeah. adult-oriented. Yeah. yeah, You know, interesting uh, stuff. Yeah, what we get mix. some Latin music and some Latin. world music and reggae music, and we get old-fashioned gospel. I mean, all of that is in that show. And sometimes when you're listening, it makes you feel almost dizzy. It's like, wow, <laughs> we really took a jump there. <laughs> well, the... There was a there's a woman over at WFIU named Yael Cassander. Yes. And Yael was very kind one time. She said about those jumps. She said, "Well, you know, the listeners have be, have come to trust you enough that when you make those jumps, they don't feel unsafe." Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. There must be a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I don't don't I hope I'm not scaring people away with those jumps, but yeah. No, yeah. no. Now, here's an interesting thing. You bring that up. Now, you are an alumnus of WFHB. Yeah. Because when you were here, you did the Tuesday afternoon music mix. You did Aura Latina. Mm-hmm. You did the Jazz Menagerie mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Then you went over to WFIU. Mm-hmm. Now, so did Yael Cassander. Mm-hmm. So did David Brent Johnson. Mm-hmm. All three of you yes. people. And I think there's some others, too. Will Murphy. Yeah, of course. Was the general manager right. here. And Will was the time. one who brought me in here. And so uh-huh. he was the general manager over there yeah. at the time when Joe Bourne was leaving. Right. And then uh, that door to do the Friday show was open. And and somehow, uh, just fortuitous that Will and I communicated at that time. And he said, do you want to come over here and do the Friday show? So that just worked wow. out that way. And then... The Friday show, you know, knock on plastic, knock on wood, has 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 been so well that now we do the Saturday night Soul Kitchen too. So we have that from ten to midnight. And I know it's a secret, and I don't want to let out let talk too much out of school. Uh-oh. But a lot of folks might think that I'm in the studio from ten to midnight on Saturday. But we have to pre-record that show, brother, because I am getting ready to go to bed you know, on Saturday night. Uh, you're a man of a certain age. Yes, I am. Yeah, I'm sixty, and yeah. I can barely believe it. But I'm trying to. Be a young 60. You must have a fantastic private collection. Yeah, I've got about 3,000 CDs. CDs? Do you have any vinyl? Yeah, I've got some, but, um, yeah, and probably the vinyl is, the vinyl collection probably has, just by nature of it being vinyl, but I have a lot of 78s, too, that I inherited from my family. Um, Yeah, I've probably got a a thousand CDs, a thousand albums, and they're older vintage. They're... 50s, 60s, jazz, mostly, and rock. Are you one of those fellas who says, I love the warm sound of vinyl more than the sort of cold sound of uh, digital media? That's an excellent question. I remember when I got my first CDs. um, This was the year I was getting ready to graduate law school, Uh about 1988, 1989. Um, My dad, for my graduation gift from law school, bought me a CD player. And he gave me The Temptations, Ella Fitzgerald, and Ray Charles, and um, some kind of rock album. I forgot. I don't know how he knew that I would listen to it, but he did, and I listened to it. I want to say it was Jimi Hendrix, but I think it was The Beatles' Abbey Road. Uh And I don't know how he figured that out, but, you know, it's kind of a strange collection. But I remember listening to those albums and listening to those CDs and thinking how— you know, because they would they were recorded in analog, but they were able to, I guess, convert them to digital. Uh-huh. And I remember thinking how much better it sounded, how much crisper it sounded. So I, I, I've 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 heard the advantage of the sound going from album to CD, and I don't know that I've interpreted it so much going back uh-huh. from CD to album. I 
I've always enjoyed the separation of sound and the fidelity you hear in digital so much that I, I don't know that I'm one of the people that I see. appreciate the, the middle tones of, of LPs. When I was a kid, yeah. listening to Top 40 radio in Chicago, there was mm-hmm. WLS, there mm-hmm. was WCFL, mm-hmm. you got this uh, almost dizzying variety mm-hmm. of music mm-hmm. on the Top 40 mm-hmm. charts. Mm-hmm. You were exposed mm-hmm. to almost every kind of popular music mm-hmm. there was. Mm-hmm. It, nowadays, uh, your uh, chart radio is really balkanized yes. in yeah. a lot of ways. It's sad. That's a good observation. You know, it's interesting because when I was a kid in South Bend, I could hear WLS yeah. uh, at, at night. I could I could pick it up and I would right. listen to it. But, you know, it's interesting because in the top 40 sound back then, when you think about the diversity, you could hear When a Man Loves a Woman and then hear Tommy James and the Shondells. And those were different songs. I mean, that was different yeah. genres, right? You hear, yeah. you know... Um, you hear when a man loves a woman and then you might hear crimson and clover and you know those are very different and i think that you're you're right you're making me think that something about listening to music at that time right. um still i still broadened your yeah, horizon yeah broadened my horizon i think it still reflects in the way that i listen to and try to play music today i have a feeling don cornelius would have called tommy james a blue-eyed soul brother. <laughs> <laughs> he might have. I don't know if Crimson and... Yeah, yeah he might have. Uh, I, I mean, some, Tommy James is an Indiana guy. Yeah. If I were to shine the harsh light yeah. on you yeah. and say, what are you? Would you immediately respond lawyer or would you respond DJ? I would respond... Um, you can't do both. Yeah, okay. Okay, but I think there's somewhere in there that you and I talked about this. I think I would respond teacher. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Why? Well, because I think on the radio and as a lawyer, and, and, and I've taught for more than 15 years of my life. I mean, I'm a teacher at Ivy Tech now, so I want to give Ivy Tech a little uh, shout out for the role it plays in my life. Um. I think a good lawyer, and you and I had talked about this briefly, the best lawyers that I knew back in North Carolina were lawyers who had been teachers first. Uh And so they had impressed upon me that when you have a new client, you need to teach your client the law. You need to teach the opposing side your client's case. You Uh need to teach the courtroom what your client's case is all about relative to the law. You might have to teach a jury the law your client's case, your client's innocence or, or lack of, of responsibility for something, you know, you, you're always teaching. And I think in the Soul Kitchen, I think I'm showing people different kinds of music. But I want to say something about the Soul Kitchen. Please. Because, because the Soul Kitchen, and I know it doesn't have this, Michael, but it's it, it, my original intent when I had the show here at WFHB, the Tuesday afternoon music mix, was to bring African-American voices and sound into everything I played. So I wanted to play Hendrix, and I wanted to play Charlie Pride, and I wanted to play... I mean, there's something... It's not that I'm, I'm, I'm being racist in doing that, but I'm saying this is a part of the sound of black America that isn't just soul and R&B. Right. It has permeated every part of American music. And so I can go with Blue-Eyed Soul Brothers. I can go with Iris Dement. Now, Iris Dement is not soul music, but she has something that comes from 
the, the rural country backgrounds where so many black people come from and white people and all people that I consider Iris DeMint a soul singer. Now, is she going to be on the Soul Brother Top 20? No. <laughs> is she going to be? No. But I consider Iris DeMint a soul singer. Now, you bring up the word soul, which makes me think of uh, spirit. Yeah. And, you know, here's the funny thing. Your brother, William. Yeah, yeah. And for the longest time, I thought you were a preacher. Mm. And I've learned that you're not a preacher. Mm. On the other hand, that might be changing. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think all my life in South Bend and in Newark and going on, and I'm always talking to people about trying to do the right thing. And I hope that my life is about trying to do the right thing. So I think people, friends of mine, have always said, well, you preach it, Brother William. You preach it. You preach it, Billy Morris. You <laughs> preach it. And so I don't know that I've never not been a preacher, but no one has ever formally designated me that. And um, several years ago, a couple years ago, you know, I had a, a stroke. And that stroke sort of woke me up. I we'd been on a trip to Israel. I mean, I've I've been in a sort of trajectory. You know, sometimes life's just moving along, and then all of a sudden, a, tra a trajectory jumps off. Yeah. And so there's been a trajectory toward going deeper into my faith and um, allowing people to train me and show me and share with me ways in which I can be a, a, an effective leader in faith. And so I'm. I'm in the process of, of, in the Episcopal Church, of working toward ordination as, uh -huh. as a deacon, it's called. You know, I'm uh -huh. not a priest, but a deacon. I, I, maybe if I had started 40 years ago, maybe priest, but I... I Is I, that I, like a lieutenant? Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like a lieutenant. It's 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 Yeah, yeah, lieutenant is cool. Yeah, yeah, I don't, <laughs> without going into it, but yeah, it's like a lieutenant. How did you get to WFHB? How you know, did it start here? Yeah, this, this is a very sort of interesting story. You know, sometimes in life things are meant to happen, and I think WFHB was meant to happen. So when I was teaching at Indiana University and I was very involved with the lives of international students, I was trying to find volunteer opportunities downtown that the international students could get involved in and then come volunteer, hear English, um, work with people in English and get a working knowledge of English through mm. their volunteer opportunities. So I went here. I went to Big Brothers. I mean, I went to all these different organizations to try to find ways the international students could get involved. So I came to the volunteer meeting with Jim Mannion and Will Murphy and all of them one Saturday. And I said, whoa, I think I'd like to be a DJ. It just popped into my head. I mean, I really you wasn't. You hadn't thought no, of it No, I hadn't before? thought of it. I hadn't thought get of it at of all. I had all. That's what makes this whole DJ thing so weird because I had never aspired to be a DJ. Never thought about it. Never even <laughs> thought about it. So pretty soon I'm in the training to be a DJ. And one of the things that they ask you to do here at WFHB as you're moving through the volunteer sort of um mentality training the, uh, is they ask you to be what they call a desk jockey because WFHB the beauty of it is everybody's everybody's a volunteer right so they ask you to sit at the front desk they don't have anybody that they pay to do that so they ask people to take two three hour shifts sitting at the front desk so I did that answering the phones and getting a chance to talk to Jeff Morris more and Jim Mannion and, and understanding how WFHB came to be and just really getting a chance to meet all these people and it was really a great time but about the third or fourth week I was volunteering, 
the DJ on Tuesday afternoon didn't show up. So this is like a Lou Gehrig experience. That person didn't show up. So they asked me, can you fill in? Well, I always got a ton of CDs in my car because I'm always riding around listening to music. So I said, give me a minute. So I run out to my car. I get all these CDs. I bring them in. And I started doing the Tuesday afternoon show. Now, I don't know whose place I took, but that person never got that Tuesday afternoon <laughs> slot back. William Morris. Yeah. He's an attorney. He's a DJ. He's many things. But more than anything, he's Brother William. Mm. Thanks for joining us on Big Talk. Brother, thank you for having me. This has been a big treat. Thank you so much. Mm.